We read Romans 13, 1 to 7 on government, the Christian's relationship to his government. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen. This subject of the Christian's relationship to the government is addressed here in these verses. The Apostle Paul has now, after explaining the Christian's relationship to one another in chapter 12, and our duty to love one another and to love God in this way, he is now turning his attention to how we behave in general and in society. In general and in society in chapter 13. In 13, 1 to 7, in relationship to the government, in verses 8 to 10, toward one another, which also includes those who are outside the church. And also in verses 11 to 14, in reference to our behavior, behavior of such a kind that does impact and relate to others in society, such as in verse 13, carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, so forth, that these are sins that are committed not only in families, not only in churches, but also generally in the world. And this is the kind of thing that Christians ought not to do. We ought to understand our proper relationship between ourselves and our society. And in verses 1 to 7, it is the government. Now, when we think about this subject of our relationship to the government, there are a few ideologies, a few philosophies, a a few political viewpoints that are very popular, and they are popular because these are the only options. They are popular throughout human history. And they go from one uh, one, uh, area or one point of the spectrum to another area or point of the spectrum. They're all unbiblical, unbiblical. They contradict the Bible, these different political philosophies. On the one hand, we have tyranny, tyranny or despotism, and this is most evident in modern days in communism. Communism is tyrannical, it is despotic, that is, whatever the few, literally the very few in the government decide, 
and they want to happen in their own country, they force it, they impose it on all the people. They do it in many different ways, but it also leads to force of violence. That is, they threaten violence, they might assassinate, they might massacre, they might throw you into prison and beat you there and treat you in very harmful ways in the prison, in the jail. They may also execute you, execute those who disagree with them. This is what communists do, and they do it violently. A milder form of communism is socialism. Socialism may not practice the violence or threaten the violence commonly or at all times, but socialism will present a dilemma to the citizens in that, do you want uh, more of your money or less of your money? In socialism, they take away more of your money in taxes. In communism, they certainly do that. In socialism, they also do that. Yet, the penalty would be a fine. It may be imprisonment. It may be a lawsuit. It may be something of that nature, but it's usually not with the threat of violence, physical violence. That's in socialism. And then in socialism and communism, what is the government providing to its citizenry? It's providing all kinds of services, such as education, medical care, food. It's providing these kinds of, of necessities of life that they ought not to provide. There is no reason why the government should be providing by taking your tax money away first and then giving it back to you with a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter or diapers. It should not happen that way. They shouldn't take the money from us in the first place so that the individuals, the families, can take care of themselves without the money going away from them first and then coming back in crumbs back to the citizens. It should not happen that way. That's what communism and socialism do. But on the other hand, we have a philosophy called libertarianism. Libertarianism. Libertarianism is on the opposite side of tyranny in that libertarians believe the government should not take away our tax money, or hardly at all, if any, and then the government should be very, very small and not telling us what to do about anything, practically, so that the libertarian can live as he pleases. There should be no laws against adultery. There should be no laws against any sexual sin. Whatever people want to do, let them do it. There shouldn't even be laws against the murder of babies in abortion. They think that people should be able to do whatever they want to do, just leave us alone. That's in libertarianism. They want to be able to do whatever they please. But what is the role of the government and how should we um, look at it? What should our perspective be on it? The apostle tells us here in Romans 13, because It is necessary to understand the biblical approach since Christians have all kinds of viewpoints on it, and they shouldn't. They should have a more biblically regulated viewpoint 
on our relationship to the government. And in the libertarian one, we may add, there is unnecessary, complete skepticism of anything and everything that the government does. And that sometimes is excessive in libertarianism. So what should we think of the government? What is its place? Verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Firstly, the apostle says that each one of us, without exception, each one of us, without exception, ought to be in subjection to the governing authorities. In subjection is another way of saying we ought to obey the laws. We ought to obey the laws. Verse 1, to be in subjection means the same as obeying the laws. To the governing authorities. There are different levels of governing authorities. There are those in the very local level. Let's say we live in a city, so there will be the municipality, There will be the county government. There will also be the state government. And then there will be the federal government, the national government. These are different levels of government. It says that there should be subjection to the governing authorities at the various levels. It doesn't mean that we can and ought to obey the federal government, but disobey the municipality. It doesn't mean that we obey the municipality, and then disobey the federal government. We have to have a better way and, uh, of understanding and judging who we are obeying and who we are disobeying. But here he's just making a general statement that we ought to be in subjection. We ought to obey them. Now why? Why should we obey them? Verse 1, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The governing authorities are in place because God is the one who puts them there. He is the ruler over the realm of mankind and he gives it to whomever he wishes. Daniel 4:17. He is the ruler over the realm of mankind and he gives it, he gives the rulership the authority over everyone, to whomever he wishes. God is the one who raises up kings, and he puts down kings. He says in verse 1, from God, by God. They are from God and established by God. That means that we Christians cannot say that the government is not from God. No Christian should have that view that the government is not from God. He says so in verse 1, from God, by God. Verse 2, he says, the ordinance of God. In verse 4, he says, it is a minister of God. Two times he says, minister of God. A minister is a servant, a servant of God. As well, he says that they are Servants, in verse 6, servants of God. Using synonyms of the word servant. Minister and then servant of God. 
That's what they are. They have been placed there by God himself. This will not only caution us to not be completely skeptical on the one hand, but on the other hand, we cannot say that the government is the highest authority. Well, who says the government is the highest authority? The tyrants, the despots. Communists say that. Communists believe that the government is the highest authority because they don't believe in the authority of God because they are often thinking of themselves as gods. If they are tyrants who believe in paganism, in paganism, the king believes he is deity. He is a son of God on the earth. But if they are communists who say there is no God, well, they themselves are gods because an atheist is actually an autotheist. That is, he believes himself to be God. He can say whatever, do whatever he wants. Nobody is above him. So he is a god himself. That means that the communist dictator believes he is God and there is no higher authority. Well, that view is also wrong because of the existence of God. We also notice that this is addressed to the Roman Christians. The Roman Christians have above them, in authority over them, a pagan government that worships idols, that believes the emperor is a son of God. The emperor So even in a pagan society, even in a government that is not Christian, does not claim to be Christian, he's saying that those governments are in place by God for a specific purpose. Verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. When we resist authority, we are opposing the ordinance, the word, the law of God. And if we are opposing the law of God, we are opposing God himself, which we must not do. But one might wonder, one might ask, how is it that the pagan governments are carrying out the ordinance of God? that they are there because of God's laws or ordinances. We go to Romans 2. Romans 2, 14 to 16. How is it that pagan, idolatrous, non-Christian religions and, and their adherents, how is it that they know or they carry out the ordinance of God. Romans 2:14 says, "For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In 14 and 15, the Gentiles, 
they have the law of God, not the written law of God, which the sons of Israel have, but the Gentiles, they have the unwritten law of God instinctively, written in their hearts, on their conscience, in their thoughts. And what they know to be right and true within, God will judge them on the day of judgment. This is the ordinance of God that they have. They have it internally inside them. They know that it is wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to steal. That's why all nations, no matter whether they are Christian nations or not, they have laws against these kinds of sins, which they enact in their laws and make them crimes. They know and they understand. Not only that, but they also have laws that they also know, and some countries have laws that prohibit idolatry, the worship of idols. So there are many things that they know according to the ordinance of God. So then, if they know, we ought to know all the more. And if we oppose them, what will happen? Romans 13, 2. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If we oppose what we know to be true and the government is practicing it, we oppose them, we will receive condemnation. The immediate condemnation he has in view is the wrath or the vengeance carried out in verse 4. That condemnation. But those who persist in living this way, they show themselves to be unbelievers and ultimately on the day of judgment will receive the condemnation of God. It's both immediate condemnation but also eternal condemnation. In verse 2, if we oppose, we will be condemned. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. When we are obeying the laws, when we are doing what is right, then we should not have any fear of them. We should not have any fear of them arresting us. We should not have any fear of them confronting us. We should not have any fear of them fining us. Nothing like that, or executing us for good behavior, but only for evil behavior. And this brings up the question, well, what is good behavior and what is evil? Is good behavior defined according to every individual in a nation? Is good behavior defined by whatever a certain family wants to consider good behavior? Is good behavior defined according to a particular one single local church? Is good behavior defined by a denomination? Is good behavior defined by the municipality? Is good behavior defined by the county government? The state government? Or is good behavior defined by the federal government? Ultimately, the national government. How is good behavior supposed to be defined? The good and the evil. 
Who is going to be the ultimate and highest authority on what is good behavior and what is evil behavior? That question we must answer because if we say, well, the municipality decides what's good behavior, not the national government. Well, then we have a contradiction. What are we supposed to do? According to our whims, what are we going to do? If there is such a contradiction, and there is many times. For example, locally and nationally, we had contradictory statements in the year 2020 during the supposed pandemic. Are we supposed to or can we meet as churches or can we not? One government said yes, another government said no, within the same country, within the same state. One church said yes, another church said no. One individual says yes, another individual says no. How are we going to decide? Is it illegal for churches to meet according to the governments? Well, one government says yes, another one says no. Whether nation to nation or even within a nation. How are we going to decide? With that illustration, it's obvious, God is the decider. God decides what the government is able to consider good behavior or evil behavior, and God in a religious sense, but also in a moral sense. Whose definition of murder are we going to adopt? Whose definition of idolatry are we going to adopt? Whose definition of theft are we going to adopt? We have to adopt God's definition to the extent that it is manifested in the governments on earth. We have to adopt God's definition, not man's definition. If we adopt man's definition, then we are in trouble and we are in contradiction. So then, if we adopt God's definition and the government is employing God's definition, then we should carry on with good behavior, not evil. Then we should not have fear of authority because they should leave us alone. And instead of tormenting us, instead of troubling us, they will praise us. Those people in that neighborhood those people in that church, those people in that county, they mind their own business, they don't cause trouble, they leave people alone, they are not criminals, they are not drug dealers, they're not murderers, they're not thieves, they're not doing anything that harms society. So they praise us, they commend us, they know that we are good for the country because we work hard and we supply their taxes. So we are good. We'll receive praise from the same. In terms of the government leaving Christians alone to mind their own business, we find this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, 1 to 7. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil 
and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He urges us, is very important in, in verse 1, to pray on behalf of all men. And verse 2, he says, for kings and all who are in authority. Because it's easy for Christians to say, they're all corrupt. There's nobody doing anything good. We should have nothing to do with them, and we shouldn't even pray for them. Some Christians have that attitude. I'm not going to respect them, and I will not even pray for them. But he says we ought to pray for kings and all who are in authority, verse 2. For what reason? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We need to pray for them that they may enable us, they may encourage us to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We're supposed to live this way before them and before God. Live a quiet life, tranquil and quiet life, not in committing crimes, but in living the Christian life. And in living the Christian life, he says in verses 3 to 7, this as its central purpose is evangelism. In verses 3 to 7. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's only one God, so we have to preach this one God. There's only one mediator, so we have to preach this mediator. This is what is necessary even among Gentiles. To preach the gospel without harm. Preach the gospel without any inhibitions, any prohibitions coming from the government. We ought to pray that they allow us to live this way. This would be the good behavior that we ought to be practicing. In terms of praying for them, we also see this encouraged in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. Israel is actually captive, exiled, and they are sent to Babylon sent to Babylon. So what are they supposed to do as foreigners in a foreign land? We're not talking about natives with a foreign government above them. We're talking about the Jews, Israel, being foreigners in a foreign land. They themselves are uprooted from their own nation. What are they supposed to do? He says, we pick it up in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. 29.4 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. 
and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare or peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. He says, seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace, you will have peace. But who speaks contrary to this? Who is against this? Verse 8, verses 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. False prophets say the opposite of God's word. Okay, pray for the government and do good so that they enable us to live the Christian life and preach the gospel of Christ. Romans 13.4 For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. It's a minister of God. They are there to serve God and benefit us for good. But what about evildoers? What should evildoers know? He says, verse 4, if you do what is evil, be afraid. Be afraid of what? Be afraid of their punishment. Because fear of punishment is a deterrent to crime. It is a deterrent to crime. People say that the fear of punishment is not a deterrent to crime. But this verse is saying it is a deterrent to crime. It says there, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It has the sword for what purpose? To punish evildoers. For it is a minister of God, an avenger. It's serving God by carrying out vengeance, carrying out the wrath of God upon the one who practices evil. He's saying it is, in fact, the reason. Be afraid of the punishment so that it prevents you from committing crimes. Fear of punishment is a deterrent to crime. Yes, we find this to be the case in the book of Deuteronomy. Fear of punishment as a deterrent to crime. Deuteronomy 13.10. 
Deuteronomy 13.10. When the punishment is executed, it says this, Deuteronomy 13.10. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. All Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do the same. Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 13. 17, 13. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. 17, 13 of Deuteronomy. 19, 20. Deuteronomy 19, 20. And the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Fear of punishment as a deterrent to crime. We should keep that in mind. And our punishments, the government's punishments, should meet the crime so as to deter the crime. The government should have laws, penalties, that deter a a real or valid crime so that when the crime is committed, they may have the authority from God to avenge with the wrath of God against the evildoer. That's how it should be. First Peter, in the book of First Peter, we read First Peter chapter 4. For valid crimes, punishments. First Peter 4, 4.15. The letter of First Peter encourages us in the middle of sufferings. But notice what he says, a contrast, real suffering from false suffering. First Peter 4.15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. If we are suffering a penalty from the government because we murdered, we stole, we were committing evil, we were troublesome meddlers, this troublesome meddler phrase is most likely speaking of something or someone who causes riots, is rowdy, loud, obnoxious, and causing a stir in the city. That's a troublesome meddler. Today, we would call them rabble, rousers. The communists call them community organizers, but they are really community disorganizers, causing trouble in communities. That's the kind of thing we should not be doing if we do those things, the wrath of the government. Now, the question arises in Romans 13, 4, when it says it does not bear the sword for nothing. Is this meaning that the government has the power of the death penalty? Yes. The government has the power of the death penalty, which notion is contrary to the philosophies of some Christians. Some Christians, some Christian denominations say that the government does not have the power of the death penalty. 
Nowhere in the Bible and nowhere, especially in the New Testament, are we encouraged to practice the death penalty. That is, Christians should never encourage their governments to execute a criminal worthy of death. That's what they say. Well, it says here, this is Romans 13.4, a passage in the New Testament. It doesn't bear the sword for nothing. The sword, they don't carry the sword as a showpiece. They carry the sword because they have the authority to execute criminals worthy of death. There is a verse in Matthew 26 that is sometimes taken out of context. Matthew 26:52. Matthew 26:52. Then Jesus said to him, "Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword." This verse is out of context taken usually by Christians who say well, if we use the sword, we might die by the sword, so we shouldn't use the sword at all. But the verse does not mean that. The verse is not saying if we happen to use a sword, we might die by a sword, so don't use a sword at all. There is no place for the sword, lest people just retaliate arbitrarily back and forth to each other. That's not what he means here. He means that if you wrongfully take up the sword and kill somebody, you murder somebody, then you will perish, you will be executed by the sword of the government. In this context, Peter had no right to start wielding the sword to the crowd, and especially as the slave of the high priest came close He wielded the sword. He had no authority, no ability, no uh, rightful basis, biblical basis, to kill the slave. The slave didn't commit anything worthy of death. It was not warfare, so there was no need for Simon Peter to wield the sword. That's why Jesus told him to stop. If you do that, you kill this innocent slave he hasn't committed anything worthy of death, so you, and you're not the government, so you cannot kill him. You're not in a war. He's not robbing you in your own house. He's not doing anything like that. So if you kill him, the Romans will execute you by the sword. That's what he meant in Matthew 26, 52. Also, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, correct? He also is the speaker and the supposed criminal in Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, 10 and 11. Acts 25, 10 and 11. He is a prisoner. The Jews hate him and want him dead. And the Apostle Paul objects to the Roman official named Festus. Acts 25, 10. But Paul said, I am standing I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, and you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. 
I appeal to Caesar. He appeals to Caesar, and in verse 12, Festus grants him this appeal, and he is transported eventually to Caesar in Rome. What's Paul saying? If I've committed anything worthy of death, prove it and then execute me. But he hasn't. And that's why he's objecting and going from one authority to a higher authority. He's saying, if I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. The Apostle Paul in Acts 25 believed in the death penalty, just as he does here in Romans 13 verse 4, just as Jesus does in Matthew 26, 52. Then we find in verse 5, Romans 13, 5, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. We've already dealt with the wrath part, that we ought to obey because of wrath, as a deterrent to our sins or crimes. But he also says, for the sake of our conscience. What does he mean by conscience? Why for the sake of our conscience? First Peter explains. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. In verses 13 to 20, he likewise has an exhortation for authority and how we should view our authorities. And then when he comes to verse 19, 2, 19, he says this, 1 Peter 2, 19, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. The conscience is the conscience toward God. That is, you should know in your conscience that you are doing the will of God and your conscience is not pricking you, it's not bothering you with guilt, knowing that before God you did wrong, you did evil. You should have a good conscience before God. Further, he says in 1 Peter three, sixteen, also speaking of sufferings and unjust treatment, he says, 1 Peter 3, 16, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Keep a good conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that is right before God in the sight of God. For these two reasons, keeping an honest good, guiltless, innocent conscience within us before God. That's the one reason. And the other reason is to avoid the wrath of God executed by the government. For these two reasons, we ought to obey the authorities. Now we come to verses 6 and 7, Romans 13, 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
Since they are servants of God, since they are supposed to devote themselves to matters of justice, that is, criminals within the country and enemies outside the country, some of whom infiltrate one's country, that's the basic purpose of the government. The basic purpose of the government is justice for the protection of its own citizens. Its purpose, keep criminals away from innocent citizens within the country and also keep foreign enemies away from the citizens of your own country. And that includes warfare as necessary. 1 Corinthians 9, 7. What soldier is enlisted by his own expense? What soldier serves at his own expense? 1 Corinthians 9, 7. He doesn't. The taxes to protect the country from foreign enemies, they need to hire, the government hires soldiers with the tax money. The government also uses tax money for judges and other officers that are necessary in the government to keep law in order. Period. The other purposes, like we said, providing the citizens with food, education, health care, <coughs> clothing, whatever other things that government does, they have no business doing that. They should leave our tax money alone. We should keep it, spend it wisely, provide for our own. That's how it should work. So then, taxes. Some say there should be no taxes. Others say there should be lots of taxes taken from the citizens which is correct. The correct view is some taxes. Not a lot of taxes, and in communist governments, they want 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of all of your income given to the government in tax revenue. That's what they want. Yes, as much as 90%. They're not always successful, but they try. And some countries throughout history the last 100, 150 years, they have done so. That amount of money taken away from the citizens. That should not happen. But it's also not supposed to be a meager amount so that the government cannot function to deal with criminals and to deal with our foreign adversaries. It shouldn't be that way either. So where should we see or strike a balance? We read... If we are to use this example from 1 Samuel, when they were desiring a king, Samuel gave them statutes, regulations concerning the king and what he would do. It says, we pick it up in, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 10. 1 Samuel eight ten. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said... This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers." 
And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male slaves and your female slaves and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There is a prescription here. We see in verses 15 and 17, a tenth, a tenth, which would be a tithe to the government, a tenth of our income, a tenth of our resources to the government. Not 50, 60, 90%, but a tenth. If we were to give a tenth and they were to restrict their activities, their duties to what the Bible says, they should have ample amount to protect us from criminals and from our foreign enemies. This is the perspective of the government we should have. Give them tax or custom fees and give them fear and give them honor in their due place. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.